Hello and welcome to Tonebenders, where we talk with the sonic artists behind our favorite films, games, and series. My name is Tim Muirhead, and I will be your host today as we talk about the wonderful sounding film, Ferrari, by director Michael Mann. I went into this film expecting to see an expansive biopic, but that's not what I got at all. This film concentrates on a very small period of time in the life of Enzo Ferrari. And even though at its heart, this film is about relationships and human drama, let's be honest, it's the cars that'll get people's butts in the seats. And these cars sound amazing. We are lucky enough to have four members of the sound team with me today. So let's meet them and get chatting about how they pulled off the sounds to make this film amazing. First up, we have supervising sound editor, Bernard Weiser. Bernard was last on Tonebenders to talk about his work on Ted Lasso. It's good to talk to you again. Bernard, welcome. Glad to be here. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Uh, next up, we have supervising sound editor and re-recording mixer, Tony Lamberti. I spoke with Tony for The Woman King, which is a criminally underrated film. I wish more people got to go see that because I really enjoyed it. Welcome back, Tony. It's good to talk to you again. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Awesome. Uh, Ferrari's other re-recording mixer was Andy Nelson. This is Andy's second appearance on the show, having previously come on to talk about The Fablemans. You're always a joy to have on, Andy. Welcome. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. And finally, we have our first-time guest in production mixer extraordinaire, Lee Orloff. It's great to meet you, Lee. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much, Tim. Glad to be here. Awesome. So uh, this film has a lot of wonderful sound moments in it, and uh, I'm hoping that we get to dig into a lot of them today. But strangely, I want to start with the sounds right off the top of the film, which aren't so clear-sounding and perfect, pristine-sounding. It's the archive footage right off the top. Uh, it sounds really realistic. It sounds almost like the emulsion has been ripped right off the magnetic tape from what we're hearing. Uh, maybe we can talk into how you made that sound so uh, unique and uh, archival. Uh, I bet you it was a lot of fun to dig into that. Um, yeah, I can go ahead and jump in on that. Um, so, uh, you know, that was kind of a work in progress that, you know, when I first came onto the movie at the very beginning, Pietro Scalia, who was the picture editor on the movie, had kind of been, him and Michael had been kicking around this idea of having a uh, kind of a, a, a setup of Enzo in his early racing days, and and um, that kind of then takes us into the intro of the movie, the beginning of the movie. They had edited a few different versions of it, and they had thrown in some sound effects that they had found somewhere. So I had taken that kind of birth of an idea, and then started to run with it, and went and dug up some real um, racing sounds from that from that era. That stuff is is 1930s recordings of race cars and i went and mined you know from all the depths of the internet in terms of being able to find that stuff and most of it's super super ratty and so you have to really then find the pieces that work really well with the picture so i, I went through a lot of a lot of listening to a lot of a lot of ratty lo-fi recordings to to end up finding that the pieces that we ended up using that you hear in the movie <laughs> And the, the other thing, Tony, that, that we did that you and I agreed on when we watched it was we should just play it mono, straight down the middle, keep it as simple and as period as possible. And, uh, and, and, and it was fun because then when the real sounds of the movie come in, suddenly you're into a full sort of stereo. Yeah. soundscape. So uh, that was the other intention that we did, which Michael was completely on board with. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's such a great thing to go kind of from lo-fi to, to beautiful uh, hi-fi surround, and it works out fantastic. 
Mm. There's also a kind of interesting mix with it because the the cars and the music and the dialogue are all almost at the same level. Like the it's not as uh, it's not mixed as crisply as the rest of the film. It's kind of off kilter a little bit, which it was a nice way to keep it. I guess maybe sounding archival, but uh, it was a cool way to start the film for sure. I think it's exactly right. It wasn't about making it some highly polished sequence. It was much more about feeling that it was compressed and coming off of an optical track almost, you know. Well, it was a great way to start. So let's talk about the cars in this film. Maybe we'll go to Lee for this one. I'm assuming, I'm going to make a couple assumptions and you can tell me if I'm right, but I'm assuming that these cars from that long ago, which are worth millions and millions of dollars, were not what were actually in the film because I'm assuming they had to be remade. Uh, in which case, they wouldn't have the right-sounding engines. In which case, how the heck did you record any dialogue? <laughs> uh, how the heck? Well, this was something that was discussed from the get-go, that we did have a few museum-quality rarities that would roll onto the set for eye candy. And they came with their full, you know, group of people who would bring them in with gloved hands and, you know, clear everyone out on the set, make sure that, uh, you know, that nobody would be anywhere near them with a grip stand. So we did have a few of them, but for very few exceptions, the Peugeot being one, all of them are ground up builds that basically were constructed in the UK and built around a drivetrain that was a modern turbo four, uh, you know, from a Miata. So what the plan was, or at least, you know, what we were striving for was to be able to minimize the impact of those inappropriate engine sounds on the dialogue so that it could then be ducked out as much as possible and then replaced with the proper, beautiful, authentic uh, period engines, you know, the V8s and the V12s from the, the Maseratis and the uh, Ferraris. So it was a challenge. The other thing was that Michael was on board, that when we're in the pit and the cars were coming and going, that the actors would play, uh, which I'm always asking for in many scenes and don't get, you know, that cooperation, but the actors would play that they were talking over loud engines. So we had that signal to noise, you know, on our side that basically the actors were helping out. And Bernard, in post, how are you able to get those engine sounds out to get your better engine? Well, maybe not better, but archival engine sounds in. Yeah, the person to talk about with that is Tony. We discussed this very early on as the cars and how are we going to find the cars. I'd certainly reached out and uh, realized it was going to be quite a challenge. And I'll let Tony take it from here. Sure. Well, I think, you know, uh, uh, Bernard, one of the things Bernard did, um, Tim, was, you know, he really made sure that the, in the dialogue edit that the production sound of the cars on that end was clean so that, you know, we were able to make it as pristine as possible. And he did a fantastic job. And it, both both him and Lee, they really, really nailed it in terms of being able to make the space for us to then re-replace all the engine soundings for with the real cars in there. And um, once Bernard and I had gone through the movie and we'd spotted it with Michael, we identified those areas that were going to be problematic in terms of, you know, do we have to go looking for dialogue alts or all that kind of stuff to be able to remove the engines out of there or do ADR, which Michael was definitely not a fan of, of wanting to do. So, you know, between Lee and Bernard, it was, it was amazing how they made space for then myself and the effects team to put the real engines over the top of it. And it, and it worked out fantastic. Well, in the search for cars, uh, Tony, that's an interesting story on uh, finding the cars. Yes. You know, when we first jumped in, I had a help from Maggie Chifo, who was a co-producer on the movie. And um, 
she, along with myself, started chasing down cars. And we had a bunch of cars in the United States that we were chasing down. And we also had uh, cars that we knew about in the UK that we were chasing down. And one thing led to another. And uh, you know, we knew that there was one specific car that we we're going to have to get from Nick Mason, who's the drummer of Pink Floyd, because in the first race scene in the movie, the Maserati 250F that is being tested on the test track is actually owned by Nick Mason. And he loaned it to Michael to be filmed. So we knew that we were going to have to actually do a recording session with that car. So working with Holly Mason, who runs a collection for Nick, her father, you know, she helped us procure the other two cars that we needed, which was Lancia Ferrari D50 and the uh, Emilia 1953, I believe, uh, V12. And so we were super fortunate and we had a, a gentleman by the name of Chris Jojo in the UK who um, does all the high-end car recordings over there for a company called Codemasters. And he had done one of Nick's cars, the crown jewel of his collection, the 250 GTO, a year before. And so he and I had a bunch of discussions and, um, you know, we told him what we needed. We, Michael and I went through and spotted the movie to the nth degree um, in terms of all the different performances we were going to need from these cars. And then Chris went out and recorded them and did an amazing job. So when you say you spotted it, you, you basically gave him a script of what the cars are going to do and then had him perform that and record it. That is correct. We, Michael and I and his uh, longtime stunt coordinator, Robert Nagel, went through the all the race scenes frame by frame. Here's where we're going to have an upshift. Here's where we're going to have a downshift. We're going to accelerate here. We're going to decelerate here. And uh, basically spotted every single action and then uh, did a whole write-up of all that stuff and sent it to Chris. Chris also saw the, he saw clips of the segments, so he knew visually what he was dealing with. And then we got the drivers to do that, those, you know, perform that essentially. Because again, Michael's attention to detail and authenticity is, you know, paramount when we're approaching these things. We wanted to make sure we weren't doing any pitch manipulations or that kind of stuff to these cars. We didn't want to make them sound fake. So we really wanted to, you know, to get these cars to to make their mechanical music, so to speak. You really got to rev them out. You got to make sure that they're in the power band range a lot of the times. And so we conveyed that to Chris and to the drivers, and that that's what we were looking for, and, and they delivered. That's awesome. So uh, towards the beginning of the film, uh, there's two separate sequences that are right after each other of uh, cars doing time trials. The first one involves a Maserati, if I believe, and is kind of intercut with the church, which is a great sound job. We can get into that in a minute. But I want to talk about the second time trial, where it's the Ferrari car going. And uh, there's whole conversations happening on the side of the track while this is going on. And just every once in a while, the car flies by the screen, like it's on screen for like a third of a second or something like that. It goes by, and those pass-bys were exhilarating sounding. When I was in the theater and they happened, I, I made me smile so huge. They've got the engine in there. There's some kind of wind and bass happening. Can we break down how you built these passbys? Because also there's people talking, so they can't have huge ramp ups and ramp downs. They just have to punch you in the face on their way by, basically. Um, if uh, maybe someone could uh, jump on that. Bernard, did you have anything to do with that part? Well, on the dialogue side is, again, Lee did a great job of minimizing the effect in production of those cars. So uh, most of the dialogue is the production dialogue. And there's only a few spots we had to do ADR to be able to pull that off. 
And uh, again, like Tony was saying, that allowed him to really design those buys to come by the way you described it is very good. I'm sure Tony will agree. And, you know, the look of the cars, the cars themselves is a character, just like all the principal characters. Obviously, the cars are our principal character as well. So giving them that feel was all the more important. Uh, Tony, you want to take it? Again, that's a great example of where Michael and I spent a lot of time having conversations about what's happening, you know, what's happening off screen with the cars almost as important as when they come, does these giant passbys. And obviously the giant passbys are big and cool. So I wanted to make those, you know, it has the component of the car engine. It has a design component to it. It has a Foley design attached to it. It also has just regular old Foley, you know. So there's many, many layers that happen on those buys to make them that, that kind of big and cool. And there's also a subcomponent as well. So, you know, I'd say five or six layers per, per pass by. And then it was also very important for Michael to, you know, when the conversation's happening, to still have a sense of what's happening with the car. The car is still doing its lap. It's still the driver's still upshifting, downshifting, accelerating, all that kind of stuff. And all that stuff was, again, was planned out to the nth degree in terms of what we're hearing when. And we couldn't hear any of that unless Lee and Bernard had cleaned out, you know, done a great job with the production that was there because it was a very kind of high-pitched kind of kind of buzzing kind of sound that wasn't very pleasing. And so to have all that stuff, to have a nice clean palette for us to be able to put in this beautiful uh, recorded Ferrari uh, D50 was, was fantastic. Did you want to add something to that, Lee? And just so I can talk about Michael's attention to authenticity, which he's known for. And and in my, what, 28 years of working with him, we've, you know, we've gone to great lengths to be in the actual locations. We shot those scenes at a decommissioned racetrack in the area that that would have taken place in. In fact, Robert Daigle had them extend a part of that racetrack so we could do the crash that occurs not in the time trial, you know, the, but just just so you know that all that Tony is doing in terms of that soundscape off frame is actually in an environment that is accurate to what would be going on as the cars were circling the track and doing their time trial. So it's just a classic example of Michael leaving no details, uh, you know, unaddressed. How is that for you, uh, Andy, mixing that those sequences? Yeah, I mean, again, story wise. Very important to know what was being discussed at the track. And as Tony mentioned, you know, you always kept the car alive on the circuit. What was fun about the buys, I think, was that because they were very short, very sharp, they could be as loud as we wanted them to be. There was never a sense that, you know, have we gone too far? In fact, you know, every time we played it louder, everyone felt it even more. So it was kind of one of those fun things that you get to do. It was a bit like a bullet, really. I mean, you just, it doesn't matter what level you played it, it worked brilliantly because, you know, immediately after you were back to a quiet moment. Signor Ferrari, Alfonso de Portago. We met on the Largo Galibaldi. Yes, sir. I was seeking to introduce myself. Yeah, but the light turned green. Very effective. And I, the, the few times I've watched it since in different screening rooms, uh, in fact, there was one, one of them recently in the last couple of days over in London, which has got an incredibly full-powered base in the room. My goodness, it, it was you could feel people's hair blow back when those things went by. So uh, I think, um, yeah, everyone was pretty happy with that sequence for sure. It's strange that uh, I, I talk to sound people all the time, 
that was a moment that we felt as much as heard. Like I, you, mm. you're saying, you felt like it, wind moved your hair. Yes, I got that feeling as well. Like it kind of literally like knocked you back in your seat for that. You know, as I say, it was only like a third of a second or a second or something like that that the cars just whipped by. Yeah. It was super effective and uh, made me really happy. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's talk about another part in the film where sound plays a kind of really important role. There's a race in the last third of the film. I believe it's a thousand kilometer long race, if I recall the details correctly. Mm-hmm. All the main cars, our hero cars and our kind of bad guy cars, are all red. So visually, it's kind of difficult to figure out who's who. So that's all left to the sound team to let us know which car is which based on its uh, sound characteristics because visually you're just seeing a lot of red. I was wondering if we could talk about how you tackled making those engines different and then also maybe Lee getting, because there's also dialogue through all of that as well, uh, which (laughs) I can't even imagine how you tackled that. But uh, just that whole scene, if if maybe, uh, well, let's start with Lee on that one. See see where you want to take it. Well, you know, from the beginning, uh, Michael and I had worked with long distance scenes at the racetrack when we did the uh, HBO series Luck. So we basically had the idea of microwave video transmitters that I would embed audio into that so he could be a control area. And, you know, it's critical that wherever he is, he can't be, when your cars are moving that fast, very often you can't be in the traditional uh, follow vehicle mode where, you know, you're in a van behind and you're you're getting RF transmission uh, typically. So all these things were discussed and the you know, the notion of protecting the track was there were always embedded recorders so that if it got out of range, you would always have that redundancy. So that's where the tracks, you know, came from for the most part, rather than the next. So by embedded recorder, you mean there was one actually on the car recording independently with no one watching it. Right. And that was worked out um, in advance, you know, at, at great length with Robert Nagel, the stunt people, so that we knew that we would put something there that wasn't going to jump out as it went around, you know, so it was, as we often do with cars and planes and whatever has a lot of G-force to it to make sure that it stays put. And, you know, you do your uh, rehearsal levels and, uh, you know, you cross your fingers, pray to God, and, uh, you know, hopefully there's enough uh, <laughs> there's enough headroom and everything works out great. Uh, Tony, do you want to talk about uh, differentiating between the cars with sound? Absolutely, yeah. So, you know, having, again, having gone through and spotted, you know, pretty much frame by frame with Michael, who, you know, understanding which drivers were in which cars, I had spent a lot of time. So for me, it was easy to kind of understand, you know, I haven't watched it over and over who's in which car. But from a sound perspective, the way we dealt with that was that we had multiple recordings of a couple of different two or three Ferrari V12s. So I tried to, when we cut those together, was trying to make sure that when we're with Deportago, he has one sound. When we're with Tarufi, he has another sound. When we're with Collins, he has a different sound. So we differentiated those slightly between the three different Ferraris because those are kind of the, the Ferrari characters that we're with through the Mille Miglia. Then when we're with the, the Maserati, they're in a big throaty V8. So when we go to those, we cut to those here, big throaty V8, low, much lower end, less of the high end. That's how we were able to kind of then, when they have the duel between Deeper Tago and Barra in the mountains, you know, we have the big throaty V8, we have the little higher screamer V12, and that's how we're able to kind of differentiate between the characters. So it was uh, it was very much a dance trying to you know make sure that we were very consistent with when wherever we were with Deep Portago, we're using the same D12. 
as we are with Collins, as we are with Tarufi. And then when we're with uh, the Maserati guys, which were primarily just with Baraha, a little bit with um, Moss, that we're, we're hearing the throaty V8 sound, and, and that's because that's what they were running at the time. I think the thing is, Tony, also that's important is that you, you really utilized the fact that we had the Atmos stereo image to work with, and you extended the range, the width of those shots further out almost than the image suggested, which really helps to focus on yes. which one you're hitting at any given time. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that was you know, something that you and I zeroed in on. And, and we, you know, really, you know, when we're on the big wide screen and when you see those things and it's big and wide, and you have the Maserati on one and the yeah. on one side and the Ferrari on the other. It was very nice to kind of spread it out so you could yeah. say that that car's that and that car's the other one. And that's how we helped. We also use that employed that technique as well. And handling the dialogue during, you were mixing the dialogue, is that correct, Andy? Dialogue and music? Dialogue and music, yeah. So handling the dialogue mix with all these super powerful engines revving all around, that must have been fun. Yeah, I mean, the thing is that the film was structured and right from the script onwards was directed and cut in such a way that a lot of those sequences, there is dialogue, but there's not a lot, you know. I mean, there are certain sequences, obviously, that have a bit more information, but it, it wasn't a typical action star where, you know, you're constantly dipping for storylines and things. It wasn't designed like that. It was never conceived like that. And I think that helped enormously. But yeah, I mean, you know, you just have to tackle every line in any movie in the same way. You know, you've got to go for clarity. Sometimes, you know, you look at the line or you, you, you figure out that it's not as important as some, so you can bury it a little bit more. But, you know, it's it's all just figuring out the story and making sure that everybody follows, you know, what's happening inside the race. Um, obviously, the pits area was a bit more busy. But again, you know, Tony would put a car by. If we didn't see something visually, but we wanted to feel them go by, I mean, Tony obviously would place those very carefully so that uh, we could get a line of dialogue and then you'd hear the rush by of a car and things like that. So it was really just to make sure the storytelling was solid. Uh, and it did take a bit of juggling on the mix for sure. But, you know, as I say, the construction of the sequence was what really helped us. Yeah, most, most of the story elements in terms of dialogue were pit sequences that took place in the middle of the race, of course, are kind of snippets. The energy of it is not about the words. Yeah. I mean, there occasionally the uh, drivers have to, you know, speak to the navigator. You know, there's there's story points that need to be brought to the audience's attention. But it's really about the dynamic nature right. of this just totally, you know, all out competition. Well, before we get into that big race for the final third of the film there, there's a really amazing scene where the cars each come up onto this kind of podium. They go up a ramp onto a podium. And I guess they're announced, but there's a very kind of intimate conversation between our main character and each driver where he uses kind of a different technique to pump them all up. Some he's kind of threatening, some he's very supportive. But Within that scene, there's a huge crowd cheering. There's engines revving all around. There's the music, the fanfare. That scene really came together in an interesting way. Maybe we can talk about how you built that. Uh, Bernard, how was the dialogue for that? Yeah, well, well, the dialogue, the performance of the actors raising their voice at the proper time, that really helped us out a lot, like Lee was talking about. Uh, however, there's a couple of moments where Enzo, actually, he dips down and he's not projecting the same way. And that's typical Michael, too. He wants you to lean forward to listen a little bit more when it's like that. So it's not done because it was an accidental thing. It was planned to be that way. And then Michael being Michael, he's going to now adjust some of the dialogue. There's some lines in there where 
it wanted to be said in a different way. We had to loop it and then match that all in. The, the kind of the usual challenges that dialogue has. So for the principals, I think it worked great. That balance worked out fine. The crowds was interesting. There's different layers to the crowds. You didn't want an overwhelming crowd to it because that dialogue was so important, but you needed to feel them there. And then his attention to detail and authenticity is mentioned again and again. That's certainly in dialogue. Michael's not one that shies away from dialogue. There's some directors that go, well, just do what you can with it and whatever, and they don't really pay attention. Michael pays attention to dialogue down to every minute detail. And as Andy knows, we go through on the mix very specifically. And then when I'm editing, it's the same thing. He goes over every little piece. I'm working with Pietro to make sure any dialogue fixes or changes or adjustments go to Pietro, which goes into the Avid so Michael can review. And in this scene, an example of detail was I got the original start list from the 1957 Millia Melia and made sure that in group, all the actors had the names of the drivers that were in the race. So they're calling them out. Although the scene doesn't focus on that, so you barely hear it. Here and there, you might be able to hear it, but not very much. But that detail was there and is uh, reflective of the overall film. The detail and the dialogue is insane in a good way, in a very good way. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think Bernard, the thing is, you're right. You don't pick out anything, but it's all there. And the layers of it do work really well. And I think actually the crowd... I think, Tony, I think the crowd was actually the area we've spent most time on in that sequence because the cars by nature are are kind of idling until they're released because it's the starting ramp for the race. So every time the flag goes, the car takes off and that's a big throaty sound and it's featured. But then when they're idling and Enzo's giving them the pep talk, then it gives us license to lean in, as Bernard and Lee was talking about. But the thing that the crowd definitely was the thing we had to manipulate the most. But again, with Michael, it's always story. It's always story. Every single beat of sound in a Michael Mann film is based on story. Yeah. It's not random. So every single thing is discussed and thought about. And um, we endlessly go back and forward and play with it until he's completely happy with it. And that's just the nature of, of that style of mixing. Yes. You know, we didn't have cheers for every single time a car was released initially. And then, you know, as we're working through it, as Andy said, you know, we spent a lot of time on that sequence. Mm. And finally, Michael's like, hey, you know, we should really have cheering as each car kind of goes off. So we're as we were there, we're working through it. We're just like, okay, great. Let's, let's move some stuff around. Let's shape it so that that's what we're doing. We're telling that story each car as it's getting released. It's getting a cheer as it's going away, and and um, and it had just helped bring that whole scene up. You know? Every aspect of that is discussed from the very beginning, and then it evolves. Then as it's coming together, it's constantly evolving and changing that way. So, yeah, he's focused on story and then the evolution of the scene to get there, to get to that point that Michael wants. But uh, how much you hear the starter, or do we hear him at all? The overall design of the whole sequence is constantly being discussed all the way through. Let's talk about a quieter moment in the film. There's a scene that takes place in kind of a back room of the factory. And when we first enter the room, we're hearing pigeons, but we don't know that we're hearing pigeons right off the top. We're just hearing this kind of almost spooky sound, and then the pigeons become a plot point. Uh, was there discussion about how soon into that scene it should be clear that it was pigeons? Or how did that scene evolve? And were there pigeons originally, Lee, or was that all post? Uh, we had, yes, we had birds. <laughs> 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 As Bernard and everyone else can attest in terms of those uh, 
those animals that uh, don't take cues very well. <laughs> but it is very natural. You come into that scene, you're listening to the production pigeons. and It wasn't like they were cleaned out and put back in. They were enhanced a little bit later on, but at the beginning, it's a very natural feel to them. Yeah. yeah. I think Michael liked the mystery in a, in a way, not being sure what it was, but there wasn't really an, an intention of hiding or making them anything other than what they truly are. I remember he opened the shot up a little bit at the beginning of that to allow us to hear... Enzo approaching. So actually, I think it kind of played around with how much we did here before the dialogue sort of started, yes. But I don't think it was, um, yeah. Yeah. you know, I think he liked the idea that you weren't sure what was happening. Yeah, it's more just an environmental kind of atmospheric uh, feel until that we get into the dialogue of the scene. And it's a great story point. It's a really important scene, you know, in terms of what's being discussed, in terms of acknowledgement of, you know, what's going on in terms of Enzo's personal life. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was a great story point. And so much of this film was on the page, which is why I know everyone, you know, that I've talked to as part of the team here, when we read the script, we just were really excited to be part of this movie because it's there on the page. It's literally, it's, you know, it wasn't like this thing was, was built in editing. Yeah. It was there. It was like, you know, we've been saying time and time again, it was there from the ground up from, from the get go. Yeah. You know, with that scene, the, the way it plays so quiet is part of the design of the overall design of the film, too. The dialogue scenes, which is, you know, heavy drama, was going to be very quiet. The backgrounds are going to be very thin. So obviously the pressure on the dialogue to be as clean as possible and a smooth track was very, very important because that was going to juxtapose against those cuts into the racing, the racing being violent and, and in your face and and very loud. So that balance of going back and forth was very, very important and gives a lot of impact, of course. Yeah. Oh, by the way, as a side note, am I correct me if I'm wrong, the car that's in that scene is the real car. It's like, am I right? A $60 million car. That's the real car. That is a real car. Michael joked when we were mixing that car because I'd, I'd asked him that the car in that scene was so uh, shiny and glossy. And I said, you know, and it didn't look like it had been kind of race, race worn. And I asked him, I said, Michael, so... That's a real car, right? And he goes, yeah. He goes, that car would have paid for the movie two times over. <laughs> that's, that's the original, yeah. That was the big reveal. And he shot it in such a way that it really, I mean, it's gorgeous and sexy. I mean, it. Uh, you know, the yeah. audience, even if you're not a car person, it was just luxurious in terms of how we revealed the curves of that gorgeous uh, beast. Well, congratulations on your work on all of it, because the film, uh, it really plays out well. And as I say, I didn't really know what I was going into, and uh, I left the theater with a giant smile on my face. So thank you for all the work you put in on it, and we'll uh, talk to you soon someday, hopefully. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Big thanks to Bernard, Tony, Andy, and Lee for all their insight into what is a pretty incredible-sounding film. The hits will keep on coming as we have another episode coming out shortly with the sound team and picture editor of American Fiction, so make sure you stay tuned for that. This episode was edited and mixed by Yen Yu Ting. He did a really wonderful job and was a joy to work with. Yu Ting is a skilled sound designer based in Singapore. He brings his talents to GRID, a studio recognized for its thoughtful blend of innovation and precision in audio production. He also works with IX Sound, a virtual instrument and sound library outfit. He is committed to creating immersive auditory experiences that go beyond conventional boundaries, embracing diversity in all its forms, while valuing artistry above all. Discover Yu Ting's work at grid.studio, that's G-R-Y-D.studio, or ixsound.co. My name is Tim Muirhead. 
Thanks for listening to Tonebenders. Tonebenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. Are you looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? Tonebenders is part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.